the first thing is your kids come home from school and say, hey, I heard that you're killing the planet. What are you doing about it? It sounds flippant, but don't underestimate the effect of that. It's a huge driver for individuals to want to be doing something. The question is, how do you harness that and give people an outlet for doing whatever it is? Which is like, you know, yeah, I'm not going to go work at an oil company. I'm going to go work for a windmill company other than sort of switching careers. But what can you do in your company? Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Adrian Cockcroft, a technology executive and pioneer in the field of cloud computing. Now, many of you will know Adrian as a cloud architect at Netflix, where he played a crucial role in helping the company transition to cloud-based infrastructure. His work at Netflix contributed to the streaming service being able to handle large amounts of traffic and provide a seamless user experience for millions. Yet what we're going to focus on today is something totally different. We'll share stories about Adrian's growing up, tinkering with toys, building computers, to his first early days at Sun Microsystems. We'll also jump forward to his last role, a VP at Amazon Web Services, where he was championing open source and now his focus on sustainability going forward for cloud computing. It's a fascinating walk through Adrian's life, his lessons learned, and how his experiences in early and late stage in his career have really shaped his vision and focus for the future. It's a pleasure to know Adrian well and have this conversation. I think it's going to be one you may never have heard before. So let's dive in and go back to how it all started and some of his seminal moments starting at Sun Microsystems. We were one of the first customers of Sun UK. So this was 1984, 85, 86. And sometime around then, maybe 86 or so, Bill Joy was visiting Cambridge. He was doing a talk at the university and they said, well, we'll take you to visit some interesting customers. So he came by and he gave a little talk. We were all chatting to him and he was telling us some stuff about what was going to happen next. And he told us about the next five years of computer architecture. It was clear he lived five years in the future. That was my enduring thing was there was somebody here that he's not living where I live. He's living five years in the future. How do I do that? And that was one of those moments, inspiring moments. Whereas like, not that I ever did that, but it was sort of one of those things of thinking into the future and thinking about these trends. Andy Bechtelsheim is very good at doing this as well. And I've probably spent more time with Andy than I have with Bill over intervening time. There's a way of figuring out, you look at all the basic technologies and you do some trends and you see what could exist. And then you sort of lean into that and make the thing happen. Well, that was an inspirational moment. And then later on, I joined Sun in 1988 because they opened an office across the street. It's interesting to hear you share that insight because many people would look at what you've done and similarly, they'd be thinking about progressiveness and technology or thinking ahead or making sort of early bets on technologies that were sort of counterintuitive to most folks at the time. How did you get, first of all, people on board with that thinking? How did you develop it in yourself to recognize a new technology a new trend, a new way of working might actually be the way to sort of bet on and then actually get people behind it to make that bet. Because these are big companies that you're in and 
you're probably going against the grain a little bit with some of this thinking. A lot of times they didn't listen. For a long time, I was not in a position of influence. As an individual contributor, it's very hard to influence a big organization unless you have to be super senior or you have to have a bunch of people working for you, which means you have resources, which means you can actually scale to get something done. So I've sort of oscillated a little bit. I've mostly been an individual contributor in my career, and occasionally I've had a team. And with a team, you can get a lot more done because your ideas scale. There's just more bandwidth to knock down a bigger thing. Then you're struggling more to keep everybody to do the one thing or do the thing to stay on task. I've never managed a big team. I've always been the individual contributor who's occasionally managed a small team. So that's been my part of it. After a while, you realize that if you don't have authority, you have to use influence in different ways. So I joined Sun in 88, and I was a fairly senior person at that point at Sun. In the systems engineer community, I was a developer that I'd been building stuff with Suns. I'd been using Suns for five years at that point, a bunch of us running around, but I was more technical and a little more senior. I started gathering answers to questions. There was an internal emailing list, which was global, where you could ask a technical question and people would just pop up and put in the answers. It was just a place and we'd have long threads and conversations on it. It was sort of technical support, technical questions. And I started collecting performance questions and trying to answer them because one of the things I did in my previous job was real-time software where there's an interrupt coming in, it might be in a millisecond, your code has to work. And I was tuning stuff up, building embedded real-time systems. So I'd learned that, then took that to optimizing the machines that we were doing. And started just trying to understand how they worked and what the numbers meant in all the monitoring tools like VMstat, IOStat, all the usual stuff, writing it down and gathering answers some point, 1989, something like that, there was a user group meeting and I thought, well, I'll try and write this into a paper. I had never written a paper for a conference before. So I sent in this 64 page paper and they're expecting 12 pages. I missed that, but that was sort of all the stuff I could find. And for a long time, it was sitting on an FTP site this was before the internet, before the web. It was on the FTP site at one of the London universities. They updated it a couple of times. One of the guys that I was chatting to in the US that was on this answering mailing list thing basically went into his boss's office once and slapped a 120-page paper on the desk and said, read this, we need to hire this guy. But literally what happened, his name is Brian Wong. He wrote some books and he's last seen working at Capital One, I think. Brian and I had just been chatting a bit. I'd sort of hit the promotion limit in the UK for seniority, so sort of bumping up against that kind of that wasn't yeah. really a position. There's been another guy, Phil Harmon, who we were both sort of up to be principal solutions architects or whatever you'd call it nowadays, but they had not ever had a principal one before. And we were the two sort of they were looking at. So this came through to about late 92, early 93. And this guy, Mike Briggs in the US, who ran technical marketing and the part of product marketing, there was this group of basically SEs. Brian was previously a solution architect as well. We call them systems engineers at Sun, but it's basically the same job. He basically was just hoovering up talent to do launches and benchmarks and white papers on architecture and that kind of stuff. And I got hired and moved to the US in 93. So that was how that worked. One of the things that strikes me just listening to you is this notion of putting your ideas out there and the magic that can sort of happen when you do that. I know from my own sort of experiences 
my first opportunity to do a lot of that when I was working in thought work, people would come to me and they'd sort of try to encourage me to write stuff down or to publish it. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. You know, like I'm dyslexic. So the thought of writing a blog was just, I have a solid history in D minuses in English literature. I was just like never going anywhere. You know, eventually I got it together and made a blog. And I remember publishing the first blog and not instantly, but suddenly people started to reach out and be like, that's interesting. I think that too. Or have you thought about this? It was sort of like this amazing lightning rod, if you will, to start finding like-minded people or folks who were curious about areas that I was sort of trying to figure out myself. It was almost like this sort of, I know we talk a lot about building in the open now, but for me, it was learning in the open. To the good old days, that's why people published papers, right? It was to share thinking and ideas and find people to challenge them or test them or bring communities around them. You've sort of done this a lot. It's very intuitive, I guess, in some respects to you. You're always someone I've noticed who is just putting their thoughts out there about what I'm learning, what I'm seeing, things that you're trying. That seems to be a sort of innate part of what you've always done. How did you develop that? Is it instinctual? Is it something that's just innate to you? Did you practice it? What were some of your sort of things that you've discovered from just taking that approach, especially as a technologist as well? I think it developed over time. There was some fairly early sort of conditioning in that. So if we go back a little bit, my parents are both educators. My mother taught seven-year-olds. My father taught university. It was an education household. My dad had Computer Weekly that was lying around all the time. So I grew up with the Guardian Computer Weekly and whatever the education supplement was lying around the house. You are what you read. So that explains a bunch of things. My mother took time off teaching to have me and my sister. And she just taught us to read. She made flashcards and taught us the words and stuff. And eventually she made some new flashcards. And she says that when she was writing out these flashcards with words and I was reading the words to her upside down as she was writing them, she said she didn't need flashcards. She went and got some books. So I was aged about three when I was reading. Then I started reading a lot. You could leave me with a big pile of books and I'd still be there an hour or two later. I was one of those kids. I wasn't particularly sporty. Had classes since I was bad eyesight since I was about six or so. That was kind of my dad's influence and my mother's influence. I speed read and I was good at science and math and was less interested in the humanities particularly. So I did physics and chemistry and mathematics. The school had a computer linked to where my dad worked. The teletype, paper tape punch, the deck system 10, Hatfield Polytechnic is where we were in 19... 19- 73, I started programming in BASIC, Algol, and I was building model airplanes, so I used to plot airfoil sections for model airplanes from the coordinates and stuff like that, and was just trying to find something to do with computers. I didn't study computer science ever, really, because I already knew how to program this. So I decided to focus on physics because physics is a general subject that you can use. It's a problem-solving methodology, the scientific method. It's generally applicable. Because I didn't know what I wanted to do. I thought physics would be a useful basis for having to think about solving problems and systems. So that's one of the attributes I have is this physics approach to problem solving. A lot of that is null hypothesis testing, the way mathematical proofs work. If you assert the opposite of something and you can prove that doesn't work, then the thing is held to be true because the opposite was false. And you can kind of use those sorts of methods for 
figuring things out. Growing up, I was always, you know, one of the odd kids. There were like a bunch of geeks and then the most of the people were out playing soccer and I was a bunch of geeks playing chess or something, whatever. So I was one of those kids. But I did do performing. I was in the school choral society. My dad shared an office with somebody that was in the local Gilbert and Sullivan Society, and I somehow got into that. That was the county GNS when I was like 14. So for a few years, I was doing stage performances, six shows on a matinee every six months, pirate number three in Pirates of Penzance, running around <laughs> half blind yeah. because I took my glasses off and I couldn't see what I was doing on stage. But I wasn't a particularly great singer. For me, it was stage experience, performance experience. My best friend in high school was a drummer and we formed a band and I was playing bass. So I got a little bit more stage experience. I mean, if you're performing, it's useful to have some experience on stage. And not that I was ever very good, but I got comfortable being on stage doing a thing. Because you have to be able to think what you're doing at the same time as performing. So that was just the early, early parts of that. I stopped singing when I left college and I'm a terrible singer. And I'm also a fairly bad bass player. I call my musical thing more toys than talent. I have a bunch of guitars and stuff, but I'm Well, I think we're both in that boat, Adrian. I have a limit on the amount of guitars I'm allowed to have in the house. It's a strict one-in, one-out policy. I'm operating now with one bass, three electric guitars, and one acoustic. That's it. No more. It's funny that you mentioned this idea, though, of one of the things about, obviously, music as a counter to the science side in some respects, but also disability about getting comfortable in essence putting your ideas out there when you're on stage it's an act of vulnerability in many ways you joke you couldn't sing you couldn't play the bass you're probably going to go a long way as they say there were recordings if you look me up on soundcloud i had tapes from then and i digitized them recently so every time somebody thinks i can sing i said no i have evidence that i'm willing to share publicly i'll put that in the show notes so people can dive into that mike briggs our manager said, you're in marketing, you're a technical guy in marketing, and you're from the field, and the engineers, they don't care much about marketing people, and the field people, they tolerate them. But engineers, where it's at, that was sort of the culture. So the way to influence them is write a book. So Brian and I both wrote books in our own time, so we got revenue for it, a few bucks a copy. Brian took forever writing his. I think he started first, and then I finished first. I tell people everyone should write a book. It's 10 times harder than you think. And when you right think you're 90% done, you're about 10% done. I'm very impressed with anyone that ever finishes writing a book. Starting writing books is easy. So I got a book out. Some performance and tuning came out in 1995. And it had that influence. It worked beautifully well. Now, basically, we'd hire an engineer and they'd say, well, how does all this stuff work? Hey, you read this book. And, and so where did this book come from? Oh, some guy in marketing. And they run benchmarks. And we break everything every time we ran benchmarks. So they started giving us big machines. Like every time a new machine came out, they'd give it to us before it was launched. And we'd break it in lots of interesting ways that QA didn't find to break it. So that was sort of the model. We also had a very interesting program. I'm not sure who set this up, but Brian ran it mostly. I wasn't driving this, where we just borrowed somebody from the field for a month. I would take somebody out of the UK or Australia or whatever, or somewhere in the US or Singapore or whatever. We call it the job rotation program. They'd lend you to a month. What happened was we ended up hiring a bunch of these people. So the managers started getting a bit, you know, I'm going to lend you for a month. And then he comes back. And then like a few months later, you've hired him. But it's still the right thing to do. So Fraser Gardner, who was running the SEs in Australia at the time, he's currently at NVIDIA, had four or five people end up 
leaving his team and go to the US. But they were super, super good engineers. So we'd just like point them at a problem and I'd help them and we'd figure stuff out and we'd write stuff up. So it was a very good way of bringing in talent that was sort of another system. And then because I'd written the book, I started having to go out and give talks on it. So in the mid nineties, I was doing a lot of training classes and talks. And that's really where I learned the sort of on stage, how to manage things. After doing that for a long time, you stop getting the butterflies. You stop worrying. You can think. And now whatever presentation I'm doing, I don't get nerves at all. I used to, but it kind of got driven out of me 20, 30 years ago. People tell me I look very comfortable on stage. And I may be under-rehearsed and randomly trying to decide what to do next and reading the prompter because I didn't learn my lines, but I'm comfortable doing that. I'm not freaking out. So I can get away with it because I'm relaxed when I'm on stage, even with 10,000 people in the audience or whatever. I've seen you do it many times. You're a great communicator as well, especially in a realm that's very technical. I think you're someone who can reach any audience, whether they're technical or non-technical. Like they can understand the capabilities of what these tools are about. That's actually a problem because I get typecast as one type of thing. I've spent probably more years working in marketing than engineering, but most people don't think of me as a marketing person, which probably means I'm actually more of a stealth marketing person. We don't realize you're being marketed to because that's the best kind of marketing is when you don't see it coming. So I'm sort of a stealth marketing person. I never formally was taught programming, but I've been the developer. I worked for a VC firm, but I wasn't a finance guy. I'm sort of this weird outsider all the time. But also something that happens is I get typecast into the first role I have at a company and then I can't do all the other things. So that's kind of annoying. One of the problems I had at AWS, I joined with the idea that I do a bunch of different things and I became the guy managing the open source team and doing a few keynotes at summits. And then I went to do, oh, there's this engineering idea. I had to go do a research project and said, no, you can't do that. You're in marketing. You're not a distinguished engineer. You're a VP in marketing. You get so stuck in things. You see this with bands as well, that musical fact. David Bauer used to get annoyed and like totally change his style. He's known for changing his style radically, but most people get stuck in the rut. Am I going to be this image of you have of me forever and I'll try and break out of it? And you do something. So you have to try and build the flexibility into your persona, your public persona up front, because at one point I was looking for a job and the jobs were like radically different, had three or four different career paths I could have taken. And they weren't VP of engineering at five different places. It was radically different things. And I was trying to explain to that, how could you be going over all these different jobs? I don't know which one I wanted to do. Whichever one looks best, I'll do that. So I go off at a tangent occasionally. I've never heard you say this, actually, but it resonates massively. One of the things I've definitely sort of noticed and struggled in myself is I feel like I've fallen into some of those traps too as well. I love building products. I'm a generalist by sort of design in some respects. And yet the way you and I met is when I wrote Lean Enterprise, you were kind enough to, first of all, read the thing. But again, it was one of these things that brought us together, right? Like people cared about similar ideas. And because I was able to communicate some of these concepts to people and get them excited about what a better performing company could look like, how to build a product in a unique way. It even happened to me when I was in ThoughtWorks as well. Like I was slowly being moved out of being on the tools, if you will, and doing the building to talking about doing 
the building. And it was one of the things that I was noticing that happening more and more. There was moments I was trying to sort of rally against it, but there was such a pull to go, oh, no, no, we can leverage you massively here by going to do this talk, by leading that proposal for this gig that we want to win. And it was something I certainly have struggled with over time, where often I sort of have to battle my way back to say, no, I want to be in the team. I want to be like, you know, doing the design mock-ups or talking to customers or figuring out what I want to do. But because I'm also a generalist by my nature, when I'm in businesses, that tends to happen. They slowly move into these sort of product marketing type positions, which is a massively valuable skill for a company. There's no doubt about it. It's huge in terms of awareness, brand building, customer acquisition. It's massive. There's no doubt about it. But I sort of missed playing around on the tools as well. And I like doing different things. Again, being a generalist, but I enjoy all these different things. It's hard for me just to do one thing and persist with it for a while. I really want to ask you about your discovery process on these things, because you are someone, again, who people will look to for leadership in new technologies emerging. You talked a little bit about this propensity to collect information, stuff that you're seeing is emerging or new or you're curious about. It's been a pattern throughout your career. Yeah, and I'm not sure when the first time I would have done that is. I mean, it's you're collecting all the information you need to solve something. That was sort of how you're taught to do physics. The way my parents educated me was they sort of put things in front of me and then back off. They weren't pushy parents, but they're both educators. And there was always just stuff around the house. So I absorbed things that way. The first time I really started assembling information was when I was working at Cambridge Consultants. I was on a particularly boring project. I won't go into the details, but it was just a really annoying project with an annoying development system. It was a stupid customer. The thing we were building was put on a shelf and never used for anything. It's just there was a contract to build a thing and we had to do the contract to get paid. Around that time, a friend of mine, I joined a computer club in London. Once a month, there were a couple of us up in Cambridge that used to take turns driving down to London and meeting with this group. And one of the guys in the group is a very talented engineer. He ended up working at Apple and building a lot of their digital video technology and a bunch of other stuff years later. But he designed a computer, designed a motherboard. He sold this motherboard and you could solder all the chips onto the motherboard and you'd have a computer. So I built that. It was pretty cheap to build your own machine. I think the most expensive thing was I needed a keyboard and like it's hard to find keyboards. So my mother-in-law bought me a keyboard. So that was like a hundred pounds. The rest of it was a random box. I got it from somewhere in a random whatever. So we built this computer and it ran Flex 9. It was a 6809 machine and a machine most people have never heard of. Then somebody at work was messing around with the Dr. Dobbs small C compiler and trying to port it and it basically somehow got it all typed in. And I said, well, I, I think I could port that. So I, in my spare time, basically at home, I took this C compiler and I ported it to 6809 from 8080. Rewrote the code generator. So I have no computer language training. I have no idea what a parser was. No one ever taught me this stuff. So okay, that's what an LL1 parser is. That's really what it was. It's very simple. So I built this thing. Then I gave it to people in the club or sold it to them for the cost of the print out of them. And I wrote a manual for it. So the first really large thing I wrote was a C language tutorial manual. It was about 60 or 80 pages, something like that. 
And so if somebody placed an order for this thing, I used to you know, go to work and pay the work people to let me use the printer to print off a manual, burn some floppy disks, and then put them in the mail to somebody. And they'd send me like 35 pounds or something. And I sold a few hundred of these at Silicon Fen software. But the side effect here, other than writing code in my spare time, was I wrote the manual. The manual was actually quite good. I was quite happy with how that came out. It was sort of tutorial introduction to C. And then the other thing was my C programming ability got way better. Because when you've written a code generator for a language, you look at the language, the code generator is in your head. So all those complex C pointer chasing and contracts, I know how that works because I wrote code generators for it. It made me professionally a better programmer. And now the languages are so high level, you have no clue what's going on underneath. But at least with C, you can see through it into the assembler. So that was the first thing I did, which was sort of assembling detail. I mean, I basically took all the stuff you needed to know to use this language in the specific environment it was in. And then the second time, as I mentioned, was sort of gathering all this information about performance. It was soaking it all up. And eventually, so what happened to the tail end of that story is I wrote the book. It's cool. We sold quite a lot of copies of it. I was then invited to be a monthly columnist for Sunworld Online. So I started writing a monthly column, 500 words, a Q&A. We'd make up the question and then write the answer for it. But the Q&A was taken out of chunks of the book. And then I started writing the second edition of the book, which was written incrementally by doing this Q&A because that forced me to do some writing. The yeah. first edition was about 250 pages. Second was about 450. And I got Rich Pettit, who was one of the people I met on that rotation program, super talented, one of the best programmers I've ever met. He could build stuff unbelievably fast. It's amazing. So he wrote this language that you could write scripts in called the SE Toolkit. And one of the scripts was called Virtual Adrian. People that ran Sun Machines will probably have heard of Virtual Adrian because you ran it on your machine. You installed the SE Toolkit and you ran Virtual Adrian as root and it would modify your kernel parameters a little bit if you ran it as root. And then it would just put log stuff to the console saying what you thought was going on. And it would point out things that Adrian would have said if I was looking at your machine at the time. It was all hard-coded in this C-based interpreter called the SE Toolkit. And so I wanted sections, but that wasn't in the first edition. But in the second edition, it had a couple of chapters on that that Rich Pettit contributed to the book. So there was how to build all the instrumentation, how to read all the data out of the kernel and make sense. That was the second edition. There's a blog post I have on my Medium blog, I think there's a current version of it, which says, what is a distinguished engineer and how do I become one? Because people would ask that. And I put up a list of the 60 or 70 people and say, how many people on this list do you know? How many names do you recognize? Do you know what they did? And then what did you do? Question one is, do you know these people and what they did? Question two, I think was, do these people know you and what you did? And then the third question was, how often is distinguished engineers hanging around by your cube or your office waiting to talk to you about something? If you hit those three. That's the trifecta. That's the trifecta. Go be a distinguished engineer, right? And the youngest DE that we ever had, I think, was Richard McDougall, who was one of these Australians that we imported for a month and we hired, and he yeah. just took off and is fantastically good engineer. He was about 30 when he became a DE. He was the youngest one. But he, again, same. There were people waiting to talk to him all the time because he was, could figure stuff out no one else could figure out. But that's it. I published that a bunch of times, but you can go find a link for that. And there's good people on there. James Gosling on there and people that invented languages, Radia Perlman, all the stuff that makes the internet work, makes languages work, all these different things. And you could look at this list and see what they did. And some of us here, I read their book. What's the answer, which is fine. 
some microsystems, though, that the amount of people there, as you say, it's like a list of who's who, which must have just been an amazing place to be around folks like that. I always think like if you're playing in a better team, you get better ultimately at the end of the day. And having folks like that around you, it's going to be inspiring and it's going to raise the bar and it's going to encourage you to do more. It's sort of a bit of a gift as well. The 90s were sort of the golden times that Sun was big enough to be interesting and hadn't started slowing down. So having that book, actually the interesting thing, we did a launch party for that book in New York on the Windows on the World, the 102nd floor of the World Trade Center. And the audience was like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and all these names I've seen on the news, big banks and things. I go, oh, these are the people that bought the book. Oh, okay, that's how that works. And somebody set this up and that was a cool talk. It was a memorable experience. It was the first time I'd really been to New York. So I started traveling the world doing talks. And that was sort of the first phase of see the world on sun. Started traveling around, did it again with with AWS years later and in intervening period of much less travel, but more sort of conference things. One thing I really want to ask you though about is what your sort of current passion is, is this idea around sustainability in the cloud. Can you talk a little bit about what's your inspiration there? What has drawn you to focus on that now in this part of your career? What have been some of the things that have struck you? You obviously were in AWS and seeing how that works. And even within there, you were sort of starting to take opportunities in that space. Can you share a little bit about why that's an interest area to you? And then how you're using some of these methods again to like start exploring this space? So more than 10 years ago, I have a physics degree. So naively, I understand how climate stuff works in general. The sort of 50-foot view of the physics of it makes sense to me. There was this period where climate denial was getting pretty intense. So I would be blogging and posting on Twitter and things like that, trying to defend the science. I saw it as an attack on science. And it was oil companies and sock puppets or whoever it was that was doing this. But there was a whole campaign against climate science of denialists, which was pretty intense. And this was a time when there were RSS feeds of the different things I'd read. And so I was reading a lot. This is while I was still at Netflix. And we put solar panels on the house and bought electric cars pretty early. Had an electric car since 2011. So that was part of like trying to sort of lead by example. Or we'll sort of try this stuff out and talk about it. That was the personal level. And then I joined AWS and AWS was doing a little bit around sustainability. And I said, oh, I'd be happy to talk more about that. And I was trying to find who it was that was running it. They just said, no, we're not ready to talk about this stuff. And it was never a thing they wanted to talk about. And it gradually the customer demand and other Google and Microsoft start doing more on AWS. AWS doesn't like talking about how it works in general. That's just a part of the cultural Part of it is if you expose too much and then you can't change it, once you see how it causes a bunch of weird effects, if people depend too much on the implementation rather than the interface, that's philosophically where they're coming from. It's all from good principles that you should be depending on an interface and we should be able to change the implementation. And the more you leak about the implementation, the more people get attached to behaviors that you'd like to change over time. And at some point in my career at AWS, I was a VP, which was good. When I joined AWS, I said, make me a VP and I'll join. And they blinked and made me a VP. So that was cool. Because I'd been director for so long, I was like, no, I need to stop being a director at big company to move up another level. 
And there's something about learning to be a VP, which I think I figured out after a while. It's a different way of operating, particularly at a big company. You have different responsibilities. You're kind of not exactly, you have to be impatient in the right way, try to get people to do things. And there's some levels of leadership and decision-making that you figure out. There's sort of a different persona to that level of management. That was an interesting thing to learn. But after a while, a bunch of reorgs and things like that, I ended up bored. I didn't have much to do. I said, go talk to customers. Your job is to just talk to customers. So I was talking to customers. Then COVID happened and I was able to talk to customers way more efficiently because I didn't have to fly and see them. I started doing about twice as much work as doubled my output of talking to customers and my influence on half the time. We bought a house and moved. So I just started taking every Friday off and I was kicking around, not doing much the rest of the time because my job had become ridiculously efficient by the fact that I could deal with something in an hour instead of spending a day to go see somebody. So lockdown was an interesting exercise. I started looking around and I found a project at somewhere along the way I'd learned how to join Linux Foundation things. I persuaded AWS to join CNCF, my team. Oh yeah, great. Arun Gupta and I wrote the document and we ran it all the way up to Andy Jassy and got him to agree to join CNCF and the world shifted a bit when that happened. So that was a good thing. And then there was one called OS Climate. Somebody in the sustainability team was trying to figure out how do you join a foundation, you know, naively just go, how do you do this? And I went, oh, that's interesting. It's something to do with sustainability. So I figured out how to join, wrote the documents, got them all approved and stuff and made that happen and started managing that project. Then I heard through the grapevine that the VP that runs sustainability, Cara Hurst, was getting just masses and masses of incoming requests from salespeople and customers and stuff. Her job was to produce the Amazon sustainability report and to align around John Kerry's latest, whatever he's doing, and all this public policy stuff. And these salespeople from this is on the Amazon side of the house, not the AWS side. She didn't report to AWS. And so she had way too much incoming stuff and was thinking she needed to hire somebody just to deal with all the AWS people and make them stop bothering her, sort of. And it would be a VP level role. And they said, well, I could do that. Let's shift me sideways. Give me a small team of people to go do this. And I'll figure out how to produce all the messaging and concentrate, make sure people know where to go for things. So there's a bunch of strategies we did internally, like having a little weekly newsletter that said who to call. The appendix of the newsletter was a who to call list, and it got to be quite a long list. Then, wow, there's a lot of stuff going on. So this is how to influence a big organization. Weekly newsletter, internal, is a super good way of doing it. I had Elise Grove, who is marketing. She came in and figured out how to get the marketing stuff sorted out, like training and whatever. We just had AWS reInvent. There's a sustainability track. We made that happen three years ago and they repeated it ever since. You, know, you have to kind of argue with people to create a branded track. So that all happened. And then I spent a bunch of time trying to figure out what the hell was going on, why we couldn't talk about some things, why we wanted to talk about other things, getting the messaging lined up. But ultimately, AWS is still stuck behind this not wanting to talk about things and is underinvested in transparency. It's a simple way of putting it. So I left a year and a half ago and wanted to continue this kind of work. So somewhere yes. along the way, the Green Software Foundation happened, which is at Microsoft 
originally formed at Google have joined more recently. AWS isn't a member, but you know, I'm still hassling them. Please join. I joined the GSF as an individual, mostly they're corporates, but they've let one or two people in maybe as individuals and started a project called Real-Time Cloud where I wrote a talk at QCon London and I repeated it at a CNCF event last October, which just summarized everything I knew about the cloud and sustainability metrics and carbon and all this stuff. I've been blogging about that then as part of this standards project, I now have real experts that actually know this stuff, but they know different bits of the stuff. So each of them knows a different puzzle piece. What I've been doing is integrating that into a sort of, okay, I understand why these two people have slightly different views and kind of why they have different views. Well, that means there's two ways of doing something. And then there's different arguments and models. You can see where the tension is and where the agreement is. The standards body works glacially slowly if it's going to succeed. It's like, it would be really nice if this standard already existed. It might take us a while to get it produced. You have to go at the pace that where you actually accumulate all the things and it just becomes inevitable enough looking that everyone signs up and eventually it happens. So you can't rush it, which is perfect because in my spare time, I run a standards group, which is just inching forwards, figuring things out. So that's the, it's the called real-time cloud at the Green Software Foundation. Pretty much everything is open on GitHub. I mean, there's a whole private email group, but most of the stuff's there. That's kind of what I'm doing. And what I'm effectively becoming is an analyst for cloud and sustainability. There's a bunch of analysts out there with different backgrounds, but that's sort of the specialty I'm trying to get to. My current sort of goal is if I can get to reinvent next year with an analyst badge, then I get to go to the analyst summit and hassle them about why they haven't done enough sustainability stuff. It's great to hear you pushing that boulder inside the organization and now pushing it outside the organization too. What do you think are some of the biggest challenges that companies are facing to get to sustainability, especially with their technology infrastructure? Or what are some of the things that people need to start thinking about? Because, you know, I've seen lots of people starting to build these tools to say, what's the environmental impact of running your servers or even your office buildings? This is just going to become more and more pertinent for folks. It will be a measure of the quality and care, if you will, of the company. So you are, again, early in this, starting to put the puzzle pieces together. For folks who might be listening, curious about this, there's a foundation they can follow, obviously. But what are some of the tactical things that you think are really important for businesses or teams to start thinking about now? I think we start, why is this important to companies? The first thing is your kids come home from school and say, hey, I heard that you're killing the planet. What are you doing about it? It sounds flippant, but don't underestimate the effect of that. It's a huge driver for individuals to want to be doing something. The question is, how do you harness that and give people an outlet for doing whatever it is, which is like, you know, yeah, I'm not going to go work at an oil company. I'm going to go work for a windmill company other than sort of switching careers. But what can you do in your company? There is a huge groundswell of enthusiasm to tap into. And that was something I did at AWS. This newsletter and a bunch of things, we gathered a lot of that. Then top down, government regulations are causing boards and CFOs to say, I have to report on this stuff. It's now on the books in Europe, in California, the UK, other countries around the world. There's a whole bunch of regulations. The SEC is thinking about it. Maybe not, but it doesn't matter because if you do business in California or Europe, you've got to follow this stuff. It doesn't matter 
where you are based. You've got to follow those regulations. So it was viral in the same way as GDPR was viral. Everyone has to conform to this annoying thing, whether you like it or not. So that's coming top down and it's typically coming down through the board and the CFO because that's where we do the audit reports and somebody in finance is rustling with a spreadsheet to come up with a carbon number that they can put out. But then it starts to be in the supply chain. So now it's whoever does operations, whoever manages your purchasing and production, whatever it is you make. Now what you've got is top down, bottom up, and they've got side to side. Everyone you sell to and everyone you buy from has to give you carbon and you have to give them carbon. Just flows through everything. It becomes more like money flowing through the organization. We're in the early stages of that. All those pressures happen. So what you have to do is you have to account for all, all the carbon in the fuel you burn and the energy you use. And that's the simple one. The supply chain is hard to do. You've got to track down from all your suppliers how much carbon came with that thing you bought. And that's why the customers are hassling the cloud providers for that information because you don't know because there's lots of secret information about exactly where is this data center and how much power a machine type like a Graviton processor only exists at AWS. Who knows how much power it consumes? So all those kinds of things. You've got to provide all that information and it has to flow out. And then you have to do this fairly complex thing called allocation and attribution. So if you have a bunch of customers, how much of your carbon footprint do you pass on to that customer? And if you're in a software, you're running this big multi-tenant at SaaS platform. You've got to be able to break down how much carbon that platform's using and then which part of that thing each customer is using. How much storage, how much CPU. It's mostly storage and CPU, right? Networking is... Small enough, you probably ignore it most of the time. But you've got to allocate all this stuff out. There's some good software that CNCF sponsor called Kepler that sort of does some of that allocation attribution to get you from a machine to a container in a pod. You've got a machine and it's got a couple of nodes running on it. And those nodes have some pods running on it. And those pods have containers. And those, a collection of pods on a bunch of machines is your workload in Kubernetes land. And what Kepler does is add all that stuff up and partition it up so that they can figure it out. You have to do that at the higher level across your workload for your customers. So that's the stuff people are struggling with right now is figuring out how to do reporting. And then there's a whole other thing around risk, which is much more emergent climate risk. So what is the risk to your business of climate? And you have to disclose that as well. That's on the books in California and Europe. It's coming along. It's part of the overall thing. But everyone's right now just trying to say, okay, this is how much carbon I generate. Am I done? No, you're not done. Where are your buildings sited? Where are your customers sited? How do your employees get to work? Do they still turn up at work if it's 120 degrees Fahrenheit outside? You know, if you've got a low-wage population working in a warehouse in Phoenix, they don't get any sleep last night because they don't have air conditioning or whatever, you know. Maybe Phoenix, they probably do have air conditioning because it's hot all the time. But there are places which get heat waves and people, other than people die in heat waves, but people stop turning up to work. Flash floods take out bridges. Oh, I was delivering your materials over that bridge that's no longer there anymore. Half your building's underwater because it's in a floodplain. So that's physical risk. You know, climate, sea level rise is another one. What do you own at, that's at the coast on the sea level? Fire risk, all those kinds of things. Wildfires. Fascinating. I'm interested, but naive in this space, to hear you explain about, first of all, the patterns that people are using to institute this is kind of fascinating. The internal, if you will, like social pressure. You mentioned your kids or maybe just people in the company who genuinely care and want to make sure that 
sectors, good governance around climate impact. Then the top-down aspects where regulation starts to put into play and kind of a smart strategy, if you will, to like push it down and then go sideways with the suppliers that you're working, right? It's sort of reinforcing the network in a way of how people can move around. But like you say, this is only just like the measurement step. It's not even the, are you taking action? What are the other types of risks as you're describing even? So even you just sharing some of this, my mind's starting to like go in all sorts of directions about how it's going to permeate everything for these businesses. We're probably not anticipating actually how big an impact this is going to have and how quickly more social pressure is going to come upon this, right? Especially as a younger generations come into the workforce. It's top of mind for those folks about the planet being destroyed. So how are you helping then? The analyst work you're doing is raising the awareness, helping people understand what this is about. What are the action steps then for folks where, even if it's just naive right now, as you say, maybe they start the newsletter to educate people, maybe start to get these pieces of software that can start to gather some information. First place is, if you were at a company that's fairly large, they probably have a sustainability team and there's an annual report. Annual reporting usually comes around the middle of the year and because it takes months to summarize the year before to get the numbers right. So you tend to see the big companies release in June, July, what they did last year. That's the annual report cycle. If you go to your company's website and search, see if you can find that report. That's the starting point. Read it and understand it and see what's in there. And then if you want to do something or get involved, you talk to that team, find out what are they doing. Now, if you don't have a report because your company is fairly small or they haven't got around to it for whatever reason in some business, it's just not become a priority yet. Maybe somebody somewhere is thinking about it or you can kind of raise it as an issue with management saying, why don't we have a report? Can I be involved in helping this? And then what you end up building, there's sort of a maturity model, if you like, for carbon reporting. The first version is financial reporting. If you know how much money you're spending on different types of things, there is a standard figure you can multiply that will tell you the industry average carbon. Like if you buy a ton of cardboard for cardboard boxes, there is a certain amount of carbon per ton of cardboard or electricity, there are standard numbers. So you basically, you just do everything from finances. So somebody in finance pulls all the general ledger information, given just the finance information about a company, you can come up with a carbon report. And that's where everybody starts. Because what that tells you is you look at that report and you say, oh, 90% of, hey, we're Starbucks. It turns out whatever it is. You know what the number one carbon footprint of Starbucks is? It's milk. Is it milk? Oh, it's right, yeah, dairy. of course, cows. Yeah, it's always yeah. the cows. So dairy has a really big carbon footprint. They use lots of it, and yeah, coffee is much less. Okay, so it's milk. So what do we do? Let's see if we can get people to drink oat milk. You can oat milk campaign to substitute oat milk for your dairy milk. Oat milk has a particularly good low carbon footprint. It's less water usage than almond milk. There we go. You know, go buy shares at Oatly or something. All right. Until you do that top-level financial model, you don't know where your big rocks are. The next stage is you take one of those big areas, then you do a process instrumentation where instead of looking at dollars, you're looking at tons or kilograms or whatever it is, or gallons or whatever is flowing through, and you analyze it in terms of a business process. 
that's the second stage. And you get a lot more because now you can optimize the business process and start making difference to carbon. It's very difficult to do optimizations when all you have is the financial data. Because if you spend a bit extra on low carbon concrete or low carbon cardboard or something, because you spent extra with the industry standard number, your carbon will go up when the finance guy does the numbers. It doesn't work. So you have to have something where when you optimize, a thing goes down and the carbon goes down. And then the final stage is like IoT. It's like you're measuring every individual thing. Every Rivian delivery vehicle that Amazon has is super detailed instrumentation. They know exactly how many kilowatts of energy it took to deliver that package to your house. And then out on that route, they can apportion all the energy that that truck used for that route to all the individual package deliveries, as opposed to the process level of, hey, we bought this many gallons of diesel, so that's this much carbon. We delivered this many packages, so that's the carbon per package. But again, if you start doing route optimization, you can then figure out which are the expensive routes and what you're doing. So at the end, what you're building is a really large-scale IoT backend, which is gathering the data required to do sustainability optimization. And all the software people go, cool, I get to build a massive data lake and IoT and all this real-time stuff. So it's a fun thing to go build, and that's effectively, if you're really going to optimize, then you put some AI in it, and there's all the latest cool stuff, right? That's where it gets to. I love hearing you talking about actually how it all comes together, because the IoT component of it, as you say, that just sounds like a fun project to work on. Instrumentation that tons of what are, would have been typically manual processes or would have had the wrong metrics that people were measuring, whether it's gasoline purchased or whatever, but you're actually tracking movement in the it system. It gets more actionable and more optimizable as you get down to the individual things. But then the data collection system you built has to be lower carbon than the carbon you're saving. <laughs> so... I'd wrote a post recently, a blog post on consequentialism, which yeah. is also, if you want a whole extra podcast for an hour or two, try to explain that, but go read that blog post because this was me working with the GSF people, trying to understand some of the people there that really understood this and me kind of going, what? So the thing that is not intuitive, you have a model that predicts how much carbon you're emitting. Okay, good. I can report that. Now I have a project which I want to change the amount of carbon that I'm emitting. You can't use the original model, the, the attribution model that says how much carbon. You can't use that model. You have to do a completely different model that's built with all different numbers before you can figure out the effect of a project. And there's a bunch of like, why? That doesn't make sense. Look, it does make <laughs> sense when you realize the details. And the simple way of thinking about it is that it's the marginal rates that matter. It's not the average amount of carbon in, let's say, take electricity as an average amount of carbon in a kilowatt of electricity. But if you use an additional kilowatt hour, where did it come from? And it's usually gas. So even if it's a high renewables area, and on average you're using 90% renewables, if you use one more kilowatt, it's going to save gas. It's going to consume gas. Or you use some renewable electricity, which means it didn't get sold to another country, so you imported some coal-based electricity to balance it. So there's all these consequences that slosh around in the system. Effectively, the thing to understand is that when you're doing attribution, the boundary is your company boundary. Yeah. Your corporate boundary is the boundary. And this corporate boundary has a certain carbon footprint. If you want to influence the global effect, you have to draw the boundary to be your industry or your country, or really it's the whole world. But if you're trying to use a cloud provider, you can say, well, I only care about the carbon footprint of my account. 
but the things you're doing in your account are causing extra carbon to happen somewhere else. That's a problem. So you have to look at the whole big picture of all of the people using the cloud in that region and optimizing together to reduce the demand for them. You have to flatten the workload, a multi-tenant workload. It's a bit mind-boggling and it's one of these things, the more you understand about how carbon monitoring and accounting works, the more you realize you don't understand. It's one of those pulling a thread things. You know, it's like an expert, somebody that knows they don't understand a subject. The more certainty you have about something, it's actually a sign that you really don't understand something. So it's one of those inverse things that the more I know, the more complicated it gets and the more nuances there are and the more weird side effects and corner cases you have to watch out for. In terms of like analysting, I think some of what I'm trying to do is help people, point people at some of these problems and see if I can steer them towards some of the better ways of doing things. Well, look, it's fascinating to hear what you're thinking about, how you're going about it, what you're learning, all the different gaps to are there, how big a problem this is as well, how we're going to solve it. It's a good meaty problem. I'm sure it's going to keep you busy for a while. It's been super to have you on the show and hear loads of the twists and turns in your own journey and what you're looking to do at the moment. We'll just have to have you back again at some point in the future when you're even more deep into this climate space and you've got your red lanyard wandering around, reinvent it enjoying yourself i'm sure and sharing more what you're learning thank you for much for being on the show yeah well thank you and thanks for putting this whole thing together it's been interesting listening to the other episodes as well hey everyone i hope you enjoyed that show but i'm even more delighted to share the exciting news i've recently co-founded a new venture studio named nobody studios Now, Venture Studio is a vehicle for the rapid creation of new companies, from ideation to acceleration and growth. And our purpose at Nobody Studios will be to de-risk pre-seed stage business ideas. We'll do this by minimizing the time, speed and capital involved in validating truly repeatable and scalable business models before any significant venture investment. We've an audacious goal to start 100 compelling companies over the next five years. And who knows how many beyond that? So if you're interested in radically changing the way work is done, how products are created, companies built and funded, even democratizing the wealth creation and how returns are distributed, this could be the business for you. We're looking for talent, capital, and influence. If you wish to contribute any or all of these, just get in touch. You can follow us on nobodystudios.com, on our LinkedIn page, all the social media accounts, or simply my newsletters and what I'm sharing. We'll be launching a truly innovative crowdfunding campaign, and I'd be honored if you'd be willing to join us on this journey and become a nobody yourself.